The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Ended up somewhere in between. And so today, Peter is going to share with us the superfood that we must consume to become spiritual Popeyes. To be people that can withstand the enemies of doubt and selfishness and sin and despair. This superfood doesn't need butter. It doesn't need salt in order to choke it down. This superfood is sweet to the taste. It's delicious to the soul. The superfood that Peter says is necessary for us to grow up into our salvation is the word of God. So if you would please turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 22 through 2-3 today. In 1 Peter, we've been studying, as I said earlier, suffering and salvation. One preacher called it, he said, the uncomfortable grace of God's refining love. Peter is writing to Christians in Asia Minor who have been experiencing various kinds of suffering, have been grieving through that suffering. And Peter reminds us that in the midst of suffering, in the midst of grieving over the suffering in a fallen world, that we can have a living hope, an inexpressible joy in a God who not only promises to totally and completely save us from all our suffering in the end, but a God who promises to use our suffering, to refine our faith, to change our character, and to make us holy, holy like Jesus. You know, we said all people suffer, whether you're a Christian or not. But the Christians received this great promise that God will use our suffering, that it is an instrument in the hand of our Redeemer to refine us. And that's why the preacher calls suffering the uncomfortable grace of God's refining love. This week, Peter is going to point out to us the glory of the word of God. He's going to remind us of this superfood for our soul, a superfood that saves, that sanctifies, and that sustains us even in the midst of suffering. And so as we focus on God's word today, I want to restore an ancient tradition. If you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? And as I finish the reading, I'm going to say, thanks be the Lord, excuse me, this is the word of the Lord, and I want you to respond, thanks be to God, okay? So let's read together, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 through chapter 2, verse 3. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again. Not a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants 
long for this pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, you did not remain silent and leave us in our ignorance and in our sin, but you spoke to us and you gave us your word to know and to read and to meditate on, to love, to enjoy for our salvation, for our growth in grace, for our joy, and for your glory. Remind us of that this morning. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. In a 2013 article by religionnews.com, they wrote an article that was entitled, Americans love the Bible, but don't read it much. (laughs) You can kind of guess where this is going, can't you? They listed several surveys that showed that 80% of Americans believe the Bible is sacred, but only 26% read it on a regular basis. In other words, Americans seem to appreciate the Bible, but not enough to actually read it, not enough to make it a priority in their life. You know, I think most of us can understand why that might be. We live very busy lives. Most of us do. If you're in high school, you have school all day, you have sports, you have homework. It's a busy life. If you're in college, you sleep till three, you wake up, you got to eat breakfast at five. It's a busy day, right? If you're a parent, mom, dad, help. Help, 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 help. It's busy. And so appreciating the word God helps us to make a a priority in our daily life. Today, Peter is going to tell us that the Bible is not only important to our Christian life, but it is essential. It's not just to be a part of our life, but it is to be a priority in our life. And so today I want to look through three attributes of God's word that Peter points out to us. And my hope is to ignite or to reignite in all of us a passion for the word of God. And so there are three things I want to see here. First is the power of the word of God. Secondly, the produce of the word of God. And thirdly, the permanence of the word of God. And again, my prayer is that it would ignite in us a passion for God's word. First, the power of the word of God. Before we get into this point, I first want to define what we mean when we say the word of God. What is the word of God? Well, typically when we say the word of God, we're talking about the whole Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. These words are holy, inspired, and the inerrant word of God written through human authors. And then we have another term that we use called the gospel. And the gospel, when we use that term, we are typically talking about the culmination of Scripture, which is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I understand that we have this distinction as we're talking about different things within Christian circles, but I think this distinction is often harmful. Because one of the assumptions that it's making is that the gospel is not spread throughout the entirety of the word of God. 
And so look with me in verse 25. Peter says this, the word of the Lord remains forever. And then he says, and this word, the word of the Lord is the good news. This word good news is euagelion in Greek, which means gospel. This is the gospel. The word of God, all of scripture is the gospel. It all points to Jesus Christ. It all culminates in Jesus Christ, but it is all good news. Even if the chapter you're reading is bad news, it is to point you to the good news. All of scripture is pointing to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it is all gospel focusing on the gospel. And so as we look at verse 25, we read together, the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the gospel. You know, one of my great joys, one of the things I love most about preaching to you is us discovering together how the gospel is flooded throughout the Old Testament. And we don't have to artificially put it in there. It is genuinely there in the sacrificial system and the grace of God loving his rebellious people. It is all over the Bible. And so when we say the word of God, we're talking about the gospel. But as we talk about the gospel, it includes all of the word of God because it is all good news for our salvation. Now, Peter, in talking to Christians about the power of the word in verse 23 says this. Read along with me if you would. He says this in verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. All of us were born in natural ways. All of us were conceived through the seed of our father, which perishes. All of us will perish. All of us will rot. All of us will decay. But Peter says that those who have been born again have been born of a seed that is supernatural, a seed that will not perish, a seed that will not fade away, a seed that needs no preservatives, a seed that lasts forever. Now, the seed he's talking about is not the Bible. That's not what's inside of us. What's inside of us, the seed, is the Holy Spirit placed there by God the Father. Jesus talks about this in John chapter 3 when he's answering Nicodemus. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, which is talking about the natural birth from a mother, and the Spirit being the Holy Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and which is born of the Spirit is spirit. It's the Holy Spirit the seed of the spirit inside of us. And he says, do not marvel that I must say to you, you must be born again. John 3 and other passages tell us that we are born of the Holy Spirit, that the seed is the spirit of God inside of us. And so the question is, when Peter talks about us being born again through the living and abiding word of God, what does he mean? What he's telling us is that while we are born again of the seed of the Holy Spirit, That seed is activated by the word of God. When Trish and I lived in St. Louis, uh, we had this back porch. It was pretty nasty, actually, but it had windows and it faced south. And so it got very warm in there. And as winter started to end, we decided we wanted to plant tomato seeds. 
And so we bought a bunch of buckets from the dollar store and we put some dirt in it. And then we would go around and we'd, we'd stick our thumb to put a little hole in that dirt. And then we'd put a little tomato seed in there and we'd cover it up and we'd go along. And we did this in all the pots. Now, if we stopped there, it wouldn't be sufficient, would it? We had to activate the seeds by pouring water upon them. What we learn here, what Peter is telling us, is the role of the Word of God is that the Lord implants inside men and women the Holy Spirit, and that is activated by the Word of God. The Word of God is not stagnant, but it is dynamic. He says it is living and abiding. The Word of God penetrates men's hearts like no other word, and it resonates inside us. It takes up residence. And it activates the Holy Spirit to save and to sanctify men. Many years ago, in Moscow Theater, there was an actor named Alexander R. I can't pronounce his last name. And he's playing the role of Jesus in a sacrilegious play entitled Christ in a Tuxedo. Ironic, yes. Chad in a Tuxedo, just to be clear, all right. And he was supposed to read two sermons from the Sermon on the Mount, remove his gown and cry out, give me my tuxedo and top hat. But as he read the words, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. He began to tremble. And instead of following the script, he continued to read from Matthew chapter 5, ignoring the patters by his fellow actors, encouraging him to get back to the script. Finally, he recalled a verse that he had learned in his childhood that had abided in his heart. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Before the curtain had closed, Alexander had been born again of the spirit. And it was not activated by persuasive speech. It was activated by the word of God. The word of God says in that it activates the Holy Spirit that resides inside men and women in whom God has placed it. Now, this is not an isolated incident in Russia. I was sitting with a friend trying to convince him that we are sinners in need of a savior. And I was getting nowhere. So finally, I gave up and I started quoting the Bible. And I said, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Genesis 6.5 says that God saw that every intention and thought of man's heart was evil all the time. Romans 3.10 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one sees God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. His response was, well, I guess it's true then. <laughs> okay. That doesn't always happen, right? But the word of God has power. My friend Nick in St. Louis, who I was in a fraternity house with, one day, years after we graduate college, he emails me, hey, I kind of want to read the Bible. Where should I start? I said, Matthew, let me know when you're done. We'll talk about what's next. Two days later, okay, what should I read now? Uh, just keep going. All right, finish the New Testament. What should I do next? I wasn't preaching to him. I wasn't talking to him. Not saying that's bad if you do, but it was the word of God that activated the Holy Spirit inside. Even my own testimony. I was alone on a bus. Everyone was asleep. I had one spotlight going down on a Bible, reading the word of God, 
and I was born again. See, the word of God is powerful. The word of God activates the Holy Spirit inside the souls of men. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. That is the story of Christ written both in the Old Testament and New Testament. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. This means that our talk, our evangelism, should be scripture-saturated. Because the gospel, the word of God, is the power of God for salvation. We should share the word of God generously, tactfully, lovingly, liberally. Knowing that the Holy Spirit is what will activate it into eternal life. And so we see the word of God has power to bring salvation. But we also look and see there is a produce to the word of God. In other words, it bears fruit. It brings product forth. When people read it, and even more importantly, when they let the Bible read them, it produces something inside of them. Look at verse 22. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, that is the word of God, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The pattern's a little mixed up here, but the pattern kind of goes like this. Obedience to the word of God, to the truth, will purify your soul. And as your soul is being purified and becoming more like Jesus, the result of that, the product of that, is sincere brotherly love for one another. The product of God's word is not simply theological brilliance. The product of God's word is not simply knowing the answer to every question asked in community group. The product of God's word is not simply being able to spit out verses when you're sharing the good news of Christ with others. All of those are good things, but the product of God's word is to be love towards one another. We see this throughout scripture. First Corinthians 13 says, and if I have prophetic powers, wouldn't that be cool? And understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, that would be sweet. But have not love. I am nothing. If I were to interview your coworkers, your neighbors, your family, what would they say is your strongest attribute? Would they say, wow, she really knows her Bible. She's really sharp. She's really smart. She's really witty. Or would they say, you should see how she loves. Love is the product of the faithful reading, preaching, teaching, and believing of God's word. Jesus says in John 13, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so the product of reading God's word and submitting to God's word is love. Now, Peter teases this out a little bit. He calls it brotherly love, which is the word Philadelphia, where we get the city 
tagline, city of brotherly love. And so he says we should have brotherly love towards one another. And he tells us what it's not supposed to be or what's not supposed to be that part of that brotherly love in 2.1. I'm not going to go into in depth, in depth but 2.1, brotherly love does not include malice, which is ill intent and actions to hurt others. It doesn't include deceit, which is falsehood. Brotherly love doesn't include hypocrisy, which is insincere love. We'll talk more about that. Brotherly love does not include envy, which is hating when someone else is doing well. And brotherly love does not include slander, which is ruining others' reputation or blowing out their candle to make yours shine brighter. Those are the negative things that should not be involved in brotherly love. But I want to look more specifically at the positive description that he gives of brotherly brotherly love. And there are three things that characterize the brotherly love that we are to have towards one another in the church. First, it should be a sincere brotherly love. Sincere love is a love that is free of hypocrisy, meaning your love for another person should be genuine. It should not just be external, but it should be internal. It should be from the heart. In other words, we shouldn't just love one another because we have to love one another, because the Bible tells us we have to love one another, but we should love one another because we get to love one another. Yesterday, as I mentioned, we were at the memorial service for Jeremy Feek, and nobody at this church knew Jeremy. But it was so beautiful to see the, the family of Jacob's well come out. Not because they had to, but because they got to. Because it was an honor to come and love Lori and love her family well. Sincere brotherly love means that we live life together and serve one another, not because we have to, not because we should, but because it is a privilege to do so. We love with sincere hearts towards one another. Our brotherly love shouldn't only be sincere, it should also be earnest. Earnest love is fervent love. It's active love. The word here literally means to stretch or to strain, to reach out in love. We love earnestly by looking for opportunities, looking for those that are hurting, to reach out to them, to love them. We scan and look for ways to represent the love of Christ to those who are in need. We don't just wait for people to come and ask for help. We go searching out those, searching out their brokenness to bring the love of Christ. You know, it's funny because many people uh, I've talked to about Jacob's well, and there, there are mixed responses to them coming. Some people say, I love Jacob's well. People are so friendly and so nice and so engaging. And then others will say, you know, it's kind of cliquish. People kind of stick to their friends and things like that. And I'm guessing it's a mixture of both that happens. But what this is calling us to do, earnest brotherly love is calling us to search out the sojourners, to search out those that are coming into our church because they come with a need. They come with a need that all of us have and a need that we can provide for them, a need to belong, a need for affection, a need for love. We have that opportunity to scan the atrium, to scan the sanctuary and look not just for our friends, but look for those in need of love. Earnest brotherly love searches out those that are suffering to replace misery with mercy and love. Earnest love seeks out the sojourner and says, tell me your name. Where are you from? Come sit by me. Worship alongside of us. What are you doing for lunch? Earnest love 
seeks out those that are in need. And so there should be sincere love, earnest love, but also pure brotherly love. That is a love that is clean from corrupt desires or alternative motives. You're not loving them because of the way that the relationship will benefit you, but you love them simply to love them. I was convicted of this this past week. A friend of mine who knows who he is asked me to help him move. And when he asked me to help him move, I thought to myself, you know what? In about three weeks, I'm going to have to move all my firewood inside. And that's a really big task. And so maybe what I'll do is I'll call him back and say, yeah, I'll, I'll help you move. I'd love to help you move. But in a few weeks, I'm going to need your help moving a bunch of firewood. And I expect a little bit of reciprocity. You know, I was going to say it where I was like joking unless he said yes. And then I wasn't joking. You know, you ever do that? Like I'm joking, but not really. Just kind of play it safe. And the Holy Spirit convicted me very quickly that this was not right. This wasn't pure brotherly love. It was a conditional love, a love with strings attached. I wanted something in return. This is why for me, and I don't know about for you, but when somebody's moving into Green Bay, it's far easier to help them move than someone who's moving out of Green Bay. Because if they're moving into Green Bay, then this could potentially benefit me. You know, we could develop a friendship. Maybe they'd come to church. Uh, You know, a whole host of things. Maybe they would do me a favor later. But if someone's moving out of Green Bay, the only way I can go in love if it's a pure, brotherly love, because once they depart town, there's a good chance I'll probably never hear from them again. And so our love for one another is called to be a pure love with no strings attached, to love them sacrificially and unconditionally, because that's how God has loved us. And that's how God loves them. God's Love for us is the pattern by which we should love others. First John 4 says, we love because God first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. What is the product of the word of God. It is brotherly love for one another. Sincere brotherly love from the heart. Earnest brotherly love. Searching out those that are in need. And pure brotherly love. With no strings attached. And so we've covered the power of God's word. To bring new birth. The product of God's word. Which is love. And finally the permanence of God's word. Verse 24 you can read along with me, says this. For all flesh, your flesh, my flesh, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. All of our flesh will fall. All of us will die. All of us will be a box of bones or cremated hundred years from now. All of our beauty, the flower, all of our glory, all of our strength, all of our wealth, all of our power, all of our talents, all of the things we pride ourselves in. Like a flower, they will fall. And then verse 25, this great promise. But the word of the Lord remains forever. 
You know, First Peter is quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, which also said, the word of the Lord remained forever. That was written 500 years before First Peter, at least. It was true in Isaiah's day. It was true in Peter's day. And it's true in our day. The word of God is unmovable. It is fixed. It is permanent forever. The word of God, as I said, is both timeless and timely. The word of God transcends cultures and eras. It is meant for every person in every country, in every generation. It has proven itself true time after time, both to believers and to skeptics. The word of God is a firm foundation that is unchanging, unmoving, unfading. And for that reason, we should build our life upon the word of God. You know, Jesus tells a parable in Matthew chapter 7, one that many of you are probably familiar with. And Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine, the words of Jesus are the words of God because Jesus is God. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words, the word of God, of mine and does not does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it when suffering comes into your life when the foundations of reputation of family of health of financial security are washed away. When you have nothing to stand upon, the word of God stands. It is a rock. It is a beauty that never fades. It is a truth without end. The word of God is perfect and flawless. It is to be our hope, our light, our path, our firm foundation. You know, there are pressures in today's church culture to be culturally relevant. And that's not necessarily a bad phrase, but for some people, what being culturally relevant means is sacrificing the truths of the word of God. It means accommodating our culture and no longer teaching what God says because we want people to love us, to enjoy us. Many times there are good motives, but the word of men are no competition for the word of God. The words of men are not power unto salvation. The words of men are not the produce, do not produce a sincere brotherly love. The words of men do not stand for other forever. No other book is divinely inspired. No other book promises to not return void. No other book stands forever but the word of God. Let's end by looking um, at verses two through three. And, and two through three are really wonderful verses and it'd be great to dig more into them, but it's, it's kind of the culmination of, of everything that we've studied so far. Two, two says this, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, talking about the word of God, that by it you may grow up into salvation. You know, in biblical times, 
the milk of a mother was vital and essential to the sustainability and growth of the child. I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing there were not alternative things like formula and such. The milk was vital. It was essential in order for the child to grow strong, to grow healthy, to grow big. And apart from it, if they refused to eat it, they would shrink and they would fade and they would be malnourished. In our relationship with God, the word is indispensable. Peter says we are to consider ourselves babies like nursing infants forever, continually feasting on the word of God as pure spiritual milk, meaning free from error, free from pollution, free from contamination. Like a nursing child, we should long for that spiritual milk. You know, mothers, how your child longs for that milk. In the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, in the middle of the night, that child longs for spiritual milk. And we are called to long for the word of God that we might grow up into salvation. And then Peter says this, these wonderful, mysterious, awesome words. Verse three. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter writes those words knowing that the recipients indeed have tasted that the Lord is good. Have you tasted the goodness of the Lord? Maybe you have, and the taste is kind of dissolved because it's been a long time since you've engaged with him. Have you known his mercy and his kindness? Have you seen his son stretch upon the cross for your sin? Have you trusted in the resurrection of Christ and been born again By the Holy Spirit? Have you experienced the uncomfortable, refining grace of His love through suffering? Have you looked forward to the new heavens and new earth where there will be no more tears and no more pain? Have you tasted that the Lord is good? You know, it's said that milk does a body good, spiritual milk does a soul good. The Word of God is our spinach, it is our superfood for our souls. If you have tasted that the Lord is good, feast on it. Let me end with a poem, I guess it is. I don't know. A writing, a paragraph. And it's uh, anonymous. We don't know who it's from. But I think it does a great job at summarizing what Peter says today in his writing. And this is what it says. He says, this book, talking about the Bible, this book is the mind of God the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise. Believe it to be saved. Practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, comfort to cheer you. It is a traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's character. Here, in this book, paradise is restored, heaven open, and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. Follow its precepts, and it will lead you to Calvary, to the empty tomb, to a resurrected life in Christ. Yes, 
to glory itself for all eternity. If you have tasted that the Lord is good, long for the word of God as your pure spiritual milk. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for giving us your word by your grace, not leaving us to our own simple minds and sinful minds and devices. Lord, we would be so overwhelmed by guilt if it weren't for the truths of your word found in Scripture. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you that he is the culmination of this glorious story of redemption. Lord, may we read all of Scripture through the lens of Christ and rejoice in our salvation. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be people of the book, but people that are transformed by the book to love one another. This is a high and holy calling, and we cannot do it apart from you. And so, God, we pray for your grace to do so. Fan into flames a love for your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.